Welcome to Go West Young Podcast, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver, coming to you once again from the closet studio on a beautiful spring, socially distant day. On the show today, national parks during the coronavirus crisis. When should they reopen? And is there any way to do it safely without risking the lives of visitors and park rangers? We're going to talk to Phil Francis and Joan Anzelmo, two longtime veterans of the National Park Service. Between them, more than 70 years of experience working at America's parks and national monuments. But first, let's do the news. The oil and gas industry is in the midst of a stunning collapse thanks to the double whammy of a production war with OPEC and plummeting demand thanks to coronavirus. Oil production on public lands in the West is going to take a precipitous drop this year. ExxonMobil is cutting its production in the Permian Basin, which includes New Mexico, shutting down 75% of its rigs there by the end of this year. Chevron is now down to just five operating oil rigs in the entire Permian Basin. It started the year there with 17 rigs producing. Wells Fargo Bank has set up a special team just to deal with the flood of oil bankruptcies that are on the way. One person with knowledge of the bank's oil portfolio told Reuters, quote, it's a bloodbath. Now, here's the thing to keep in mind. The price war and coronavirus have just accelerated the inevitable. Even before this, drillers, especially in the Permian, had been taking on massive debt in the last few years because Permian oil is relatively expensive to produce and prices just hadn't kept up. So now, with crude oil trading at less than $20 a barrel and futures have it staying at less than 30 for the rest of this year at least, there is no way that Permian oil turns profitable anytime soon. I've seen estimates saying that crude oil needs to be at 40 or $50 a barrel for the industry to just break even. So this has a few major implications across the West. First off, some Western states have become reliant on royalties from oil and gas production. New Mexico, in particular, is about to take a massive revenue hit because of this Permian collapse. In the last fiscal year, the industry proudly touted how it contributed more than $3 billion to the state's general fund. That is 39% of the state's general fund revenue. I haven't seen any predictions yet about how much that's going to fall this year. But if rigs are being cut back by 75%, it's safe to say that it is going to be really ugly when it comes to New Mexico's state budget. And that is the sad reality of having a budget that relies on boom and bust extraction. We talked about this in a couple of episodes last year, including our live episode with the state land commissioner, Stephanie Garcia Richard, who acknowledged that New Mexico had to move away from that kind of dependence. I don't think she expected to have to find a new normal this fast, though. And with all of these bankruptcies and shutdowns comes an increased safety risk to the environment and to the public. My colleague Tyler McIntosh here at the Center for Western Priorities just released a report that was the result of months of research he did comparing oil and gas safety enforcement across Western states. Tyler found huge discrepancies between the states. We've got a model program here in Colorado, for example, and there is a non-existent scandal-plagued office in Utah. And the two states with the biggest production, New Mexico and Wyoming, were just starting to turn the corner on inspections and fines. Those state inspectors are now going to have their hands full, and the collapse of oil prices will create incentives for those debt-ridden drillers to cut corners. I want to call all of this a slow-motion train wreck, but 
I don't know how slow it is. By the end of this summer, certainly by the end of this year, we are going to have a much better picture of what the new normal is for oil and gas drilling across the West. And with that as the backdrop, it is remarkable, but maybe not surprising, that the Trump administration is moving ahead with even more oil and gas lease sales across the West. Now, clearly, there is no demand or need for more oil drilling right now. Companies are shutting down their best wells because prices are so low. And the Bureau of Land Management expects folks to participate in the public planning and protest process for these lease sales while they're dealing with an economic crisis. The most egregious example right now is around Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, where the administration wants to finalize a land use plan that allows oil and gas drilling near Chaco Culture National Historic Park. The agency is holding virtual public meetings about the plan, even though the people who are most affected by that plan live in rural areas and on tribal nations where broadband access is spotty or non-existent. Try participating in a Zoom meeting when you don't have good internet access. The entire New Mexico congressional delegation is asking Interior Secretary David Bernhardt to pause that management plan process until there can be real public meetings. But it looks like Bernhardt is plowing ahead, regardless of who can participate in the planning process. Our guests today both spent their entire careers working at America's National Parks and Monuments, Phil Francis was the superintendent of Blue Ridge Parkway National Park for eight years. He also served at at least six other parks by my count. He was also in regional roles for the National Park Service, and he is now the chair of the Coalition to Protect National Parks. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. And Joan Anselmo was the superintendent of Colorado National Monument. Before that, she was a spokesperson at Yellowstone, Grand Teton, the National Interagency Fire Center, also for the National Park Service Director, just to name a few. She is on the line with us from Wyoming. Joan, thank you for joining us. Great to talk with you. Thank you. So let's cut to the chase here. Interior Secretary David Bernhardt, is moving quickly to reopen national parks after he dragged his feet in closing them. Phil, we'll start with you. In your opinion, is the secretary moving too fast here? It's hard It's hard to tell, to be completely honest with you, but I'm afraid it's probably true. Uh, every park is a little different. Parks have been going through a planning process. It's hard to know exactly where they are in that planning process, and it's hard more difficult to know where they are in terms of executing whatever plan is in place. I don't know if people have gotten all the personal protective equipment they need. I don't know if they've been trained. I do know that parks are slowly opening um, and it's hard to tell how many visitors parks are getting and whether or not those visitors are engaging in CDC guidelines like social distancing uh but it leaves a lot of concern that's for sure sure so so joan what would it take then to safely reopen national parks in a way that doesn't put visitors or or park rangers and employees at risk well as phil was saying each park is so different that it's going to vary park to park it's going to vary community to community and really state to state because it's it's highly dependent on the situation in each area. And I was somewhat hopeful when I saw some of the comments that were being made 
at the leadership level with the National Park Service in Washington, uh, the acting director, David Vila, talking about uh, working closely with communities and states and health officials, public health officials. And if those kind of tenets are followed, meaning the superintendents are given the flexibility to work very closely with the adjacent communities, with public health officers, with, with state officials, I think it could go well. But uh, if um, the latitude is not there and if there are directives that come down that every park or every unit has to do the same thing, that could be very problematic. CNN today has a story up with a kind of remarkable headline The I'm quoting here. Interior secretary wants people to socially distance despite photos of him doing the opposite. He's been touring national monuments in North Carolina the, or national parks and monuments in North Carolina the last couple of days. Uh, he's not wearing masks in some of these photos. Some of them he's clearly closer than six feet from park employees. Is there a bit of uh do as I say, not as I do here? What kind of message does that send when it's the Interior Secretary posting those kinds of pictures? Does that create pressure on on superintendents? Well, let me take that because he was here in the eastern part of Tennessee yesterday, and I saw the photographs that were, uh, I guess, released by CNN, and I did notice that in none of the pictures... Uh, was anyone wearing a mask? Including uh, the employees. Including the employees. Now, you know, pictures are dangerous things. I would like to think that those employees were trying to keep their distance. You know, I know that there have been meetings here in the Smokies, uh, and employees are very concerned about other employees and that they're trying to follow the CDC guidelines. I'm not sure what happened. Uh, but I think it's uh, it's a shame that we see the leaders of our country talking about social distancing and wearing proper protective equipment. And then when they're photographed, uh, whether it's in a hospital or a mask making facility or in a national park, that they're not wearing a mask. Uh you know, I think it would be much more responsible if they were setting an example so other people might follow. So last month, Sierra Magazine got a hold of a, a memo written by the top epidemiologist at the Park Service talking, advising Secretary Bernhardt and Acting Director Vila about the risks that coronavirus posed to employees and the public. From what you've been able to see and what you've heard, uh, and this either Joan or, or Phil, feel, feel free to take this, is Secretary Bernhardt starting to heed those warnings, uh, or is this more moving ahead because of uh, political pressure from the White House? To me, it seems that uh, there's one set of uh, actions happening that are based on politics, and then an entirely separate set of directives and actions that are based on science and medicine and proven facts. And uh, since the National Park Service uh, historically has used science as a guiding principle to make decisions for resource management, for the protection of wildlife, for the protection of people's health, um, I would hope that science and medicine will help guide the decisions that are made. Certainly, the public health officers in the gateway communities are being quite vocal 
about their concerns. And many of the small communities with rural hospitals are very, very worried about an influx of many hundreds, if not many thousands of visitors coming from all over the country and possibly from some foreign countries to visit parks once they open. So um, I, I hope and I urge uh, park superintendents to use their authorities and to try really hard to follow science and medicine and work closely with public health officers and state health officers to make the decisions that are in the best interest of the public, but also in the best interest of the park employees, park volunteers, park concession employees, and all others who are helping uh, keep parks going, uh, whether they are open or closed. When it comes to social distancing, how much of a factor is the design of these national parks? Uh, are parks, in many cases, designed to funnel visitors into the same few specific places? And, and does that make it harder in some cases to reopen some specific parts, whether it's you know, Grand Canyon or Zion or, or possibly some others back east? Yeah, well, I think that parks that, like the ones you mentioned, you know, Great Smokies, Blue Ridge, Zion, Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Yellowstone, all of those parks have parking areas that are designed to collect the traffic and then funnel people on the trails or on a walkway up to a visitor center or to restrooms or other visitor facilities that might exist, like bookstores and concessions operations. So, you know, if you've got a parking lot with 60, 70, 80, 100 parking spaces and people get out of the cars and they follow the path, they're going to collect at the, at the very entrance of a trail or the front door of a lodge or the front door of a restroom or a visitor center. And so you know, visitors have to be really careful not to get too close to each other. Now, we've seen pictures in places like, I believe it was Joan, the Grand Tetons, um, at Glen Canyon. I know there have been pictures here in the Smokies area in the Blue Ridge Parkway where uh, visitors are obviously getting too close to each other. And so uh, it's, and it's almost impossible, I think, for park staff to enforce that. So, yeah, I think that the parks were designed in such a way that there's not a huge development within the parks, that the footprint of development is as small as possible to handle the number of people who are coming. So it makes it more difficult right now, uh, for sure, for people to uh, to follow the CDC guidelines as they should. On the flip side, are there some parks where they're designed either because of multiple entrances or just lower visitation or more space where visitors could safely socially distance? Uh, Gates of Alaska <laughs> comes to mind. Maybe there are others in, in the lower 48 where you think there there is a design that could be more uh, more conducive to an early reopening? Uh, you know, again, uh, that varies. I think those kinds of places exist in the lower 48, as well as in Alaska and Hawaii. Um, but by and large, the, the, the big destination parks or the places that people t tend to want to go um, are exactly as Phil described. They kind of funnel people into those most popular areas that visitors want to see and experience. And even on trails, uh, the crowding has been pretty significant. So I think this is a time for personal responsibility for individual visitors, for families of visitors to make the decision that how they're going to conduct themselves if they choose to head into a national park area. I noticed uh, in public reporting last week that Yellowstone at this point is not going to admit tour buses. 
And I think that's a really good initial step as the park tries to determine what's safe, what's not safe, how can people spread out? Because if you have multiple tour buses, as would be typical in the summer, uh, you know, you could have 20 or 30 or 40 at one time in the same parking lot. And obviously that's going to challenge everyone to socially distance. Um, so I think there's tactics that superintendents can choose if they're given that flexibility. Let me let me add one more thing. I think there are a lot of parks too in New York City, Boston, San Francisco, our nation's capital, where there really aren't uh, parking uh, lots designed the way we've been talking of. But there are large open areas and many, many different ways to access these public parks. And so a, a lot of responsibility rests on public behavior and how people choose to, or if people choose to follow the CDC guidelines. And, and we certainly, while the National Park Service really loves having visitors in the parks, this is not business as usual. We really need uh, voluntary compliance from the visiting public to make this work for everyone. What are each of you hearing from Park Service employees? Do they feel like they are getting the support they need? Are they feeling empowered to speak up or, are, or has there been a chilling effect? From my perspective, from what I have heard um, from different parts of the country, is that uh, most employees are quite worried. Uh, they're worried about their own safety uh, in, in jobs that are public-facing as things begin to open, and especially if they get busy and crowded. Um, they're certainly worried for certain of the, the professions that they have. So if they are in the maintenance division and their responsibility is to clean the public restrooms, will they have the adequate personal protection uh, equipment to be able to safely do that so that the restrooms are clean for the public, but that it's safe for the employee to do that work? Um, you know, there's those kinds of examples. But I would say generally, there's a lot of concern, a lot of unknowns. As Phil just said, uh, this is not business as usual. So I think the slower that we take this as, as you know, the National Park Superintendents decide how they're going to do the openings and what parameters they're setting for visitation is going to be vital to helping employees feel comfortable and communities that are adjacent to parks feel comfortable about having many hundreds, if not thousands of visitors descend on those communities. Because remember, many of the parks that typically would have certain lodging and certain campgrounds, there's a great reduction in which facilities will be open and which will be closed. So it, the burden falls back on those communities. That's why it's so important that it's done on a park by park basis and that an individual superintendent has the authority to make those decisions um, in concert with uh, his or her community and state. Does the fact that there has not been a Senate confirmed director of the National Park Service for three years now, does, does that play into any of this? We mentioned David Vila earlier, who's widely respected across the service, but uh, was not renominated for the position, is currently exercising the authority of the director, but we haven't seen much from him during all of this. It seems to have been Secretary Bernhardt as the, the public face of this. Is that a concern or do you think that would be business as usual in, in, in any other administration? Well, you know, secretaries do go out to parks. I mean, that happens. Uh, however, I think in this particular case, more approvals Despite the fact that it's been publicly stated that superintendents have the authority to close the parks, and even though the Code of Federal Regulations give those superintendents the authority to close the parks, 
But in reality and in practice, all the approvals seem to be coming out of the secretary's office. And I think this is, uh, there's been more um, top-down leadership or lack of leadership than I've ever experienced. I spent 41 years in the National Park Service, and I don't remember anyone else uh, conducting business the way it's being conducted now. I want to ask a bigger picture question. The, we've seen these parks so crowded that you can't safely socially distance. Is that a sign that we collectively as America need more parks? Is part of the long-term solution here to protect more public lands, whether it's as national parks or monuments or wildlife refuges or wilderness? Obviously, uh, the public is telling us that they want access to more and more outdoor spaces, uh, no matter which jurisdiction those lands may be in. However, uh, for someone like me and, and like Phil, where we've spent you know decades and decades working and seeing the changes over you know thirty and forty years within the agency, I think really what's critical now is to evaluate in the future. In the future, what is the carrying capacity? Um, everywhere you look, the most popular parks are really full of millions of visitors every year. And I feel that it's really straining the infrastructure. It's certainly impacting the resources and it's definitely impacting the quality or lack of quality of the visitor experience. So right now the pandemic is the priority, keeping everyone safe. But as we kind of move eventually into more normal operations, I do think we have to calculate, is there a way to um, keep parks open but also find ways to set some carrying capacity so that there's a system in place in so that you have a good experience and that the resources are not impacted so negatively that you lose the very reason the places were created and set aside. So living in the middle of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, I can attest that these places are busting at the seams in a normal year, obviously not now, but in a normal year. So I am a fan of looking at what are the reasonable ways to structure limits, whether it's a day limit or an overnight limit, uh, and it, it has to be specific to park. So while, of course, the more public lands, the better as far as Americans are concerned, um, there's a cost to that. There's a cost to the infrastructure that goes along with it, the level of staffing that may be necessary. But with the system that exists right now with national parks, I do think it's time, maybe it's past time, to really look at carrying capacities and ways to um, offer some opportunities for visitors to have better experiences by limiting the numbers on a certain, you know, a certain formula. Whether that eventually means a ticketing system for certain parks in certain times of years or something like that? Yeah. I mean, you have to, again, it, it's going to have to be specific to the park. You could look at how much lodging there is, how many campgrounds there are, what are the miles of roads and come up with a formula. So if you have your reservation at a hotel or you have your reservation at a campground, you're not part of that queue system. But maybe if you're not already in the park or already reserved to be in the park, there's a, a, a way to calculate the traffic, the number of vehicles, the number of buses, so that it's not such an overwhelming experience where lines are long to get into uh, restrooms, get into restaurants, um, even to be able to make a reservation for a hotel. So there, there are things that could be done, but right now is not the time. Right now is the time to focus on public safety and employee safety and obviously move us through the pandemic uh, with the, the help of science and medicine to, to make good decisions. Yeah. Can I, can I add to that? Uh, uh, 
you know, the park service has lost thousands of positions because of inadequate funding at the very same time that the number of visitors has grown to almost 330 million visitors and the number of parks are now at 419. And so we, we do need to look at carrying capacity, but we also need adequate funding to take care of the resources that we've already been given. Uh, so capacity means different things. Capacity might mean how many people are in a park. Capacity might also mean uh, how much can our existing staff take care of. And so I think sort of both sides of this equation need to be examined. How much money can we afford? And within that amount of money, how much can we maintain and how many visitors can we serve? So, um, you know, I think the, the ranger occupation, for example, has lost 20 to 25% of its staff over the past 10 years. And so, uh, you know, here we are, record visitation. We've got a crisis on our hands right now. And at the same time, we have fewer staff. Uh, and so we've got uh, the National Park Service has a lot of, of critical issues. They need to do some strategic thinking about, that's for sure. Let me ask then about the maintenance backlog as well. We've we've done episodes on, on that and the, the maintenance uh, issues or opportunities as we look at what a recovery from this economic crisis looks like, at some point Congress may be looking at an infrastructure package. Is there, do you think, an opportunity for the maintenance backlog to be a part of that? Because addressing the maintenance backlog would, by definition, mean jobs. From my perspective, uh, I I hope that that evolves. I hope that there is a, a kind of a recovery program that flows from the aftermath of the pandemic and that the restoration of, of I should say, the, the development of crews to be able to focus on the maintenance backlog and all sorts of projects that have not been done now for a few years. Uh, so that maintenance backlog keeps growing and growing. So yes, I hope there's a, a recovery program that creates jobs and some of that work is focused in the parks. And I also say that uh, I agree incredibly with what Phil just said in terms of the flip side of capacity. There's the capacity of what maybe a park can hold numbers-wise visitors, but there's that capacity of what kind of staffing levels do you need. So uh, I, I hats off to you, Phil. That was certainly a, a great way to look at that equation. Let me ask each of you before we go, since you, between the two of you, worked in dozens of national park units over the decades is there anywhere that you have each been thinking about right now as we see these pictures of some of our national parks empty without people? Are there any places that you think you, you would really like to see right now and see what is happening in some of these parks where it is truly just nature and no visitors right now? Well, I've actually seen that before, but Joan has to. Uh, I was in Yosemite back, uh, I think it was 1990, and there was a 34,000-acre fire, and we closed the park. And so I had the opportunity to see what Yosemite Valley was like without any visitors. Of course, I also saw an orange glow off in the distance. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite an amazing experience. Uh, we, we are so lucky as a country to have these beautiful spaces. 
that it, that everyone owns, and uh, it is it is an amazing uh, country that we have, and and the parks represent an an amazing array of just beautiful history and resources uh, that we all can enjoy. Joan. Yes, uh, I too have had those experiences, rare as they are, where different places that I worked, whether Yellowstone or Grand Teton or Colorado National Monument, where there were periods of closures, either for the loss of budget, where Congress didn't pass a budget, so the parks had rather hard closures, uh, long closures. And then also during the Yellowstone fires, um, I worked during that time in 1988, and I was in many parts of the park, and it is an eerie experience. It's stunning, too, but it's an eerie experience to be in these places that are vast lands, and no one is there. Um, So I've had those experiences, and right now what I have done is I have used some of the online tools that the Park Service has to be able to have a glimpse into some of the parks right now as to what they look like, uh, you know, just to kind of have a sense of this historic moment uh, while parks are not open. And I'm cheering on my colleagues throughout the system and hoping that we do slowly implement openings for the public, but that it's done with public safety and employee safety at the top of the priority list. Do you have any favorite webcams? We can toss those into the show notes. You know, I have been looking at all of them. Honestly, I have just been uh, browsing, uh, certainly Yellowstone and Grand Teton, which I happen to live near, but also Grand Canyon, uh, Bryce, Zion, you know, looking at all the parks that uh, maybe have been making the news uh, that closed and and some were fast to close, some were slow to close, but uh, just the the quiet watching, watching Old Faithful and some of the other geyser activity in the in Yellowstone uh, has been something I've enjoyed doing during the pandemic. Uh, Not that I want that opportunity, but that's one way that you can see parks right now. Phil, any final thoughts? No, I just, I just thank you for your interest here, helping us get the message out. It's so important at this particular time because we, we need to make sure that our employees, our visitors, our communities, and our resources are safe and well protected. And it's really uh, important that our visitors help us uh, achieve that goal and make sure our parks are going to be around for the next generation. Phil Francis was a superintendent and administrator for the National Park Service, is now the chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. Joan Anselmo was a superintendent and spokesperson for numerous National Park Service units as well. Thanks so much to both of you for all of your insight today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye now. And that'll do it for another episode of Go West Young Podcast. Let me climb onto my soapbox for a minute. I haven't tried to head into national public lands during the pandemic, but I've been getting out when I can on some nearby county open space here outside of Denver. And I just want to say again that if you get to a trailhead and it's packed, if you get to a parking lot and they're into the overflow parking along the street, head somewhere else or wait for a quieter time. Yes, get outside, but do it safely, please, or we are never going to get back to normal. I hope that after hearing from Phil and Joan, we can all do the right thing here in the coming weeks and months. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks for all of their important work right now. I'm Aaron Weiss. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, stay safe, 
We'll be back in a couple weeks.